the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today on the program, in fact, later this hour, we'll talk with James Taylor. He's the worship pastor at Liberty Bible uh, Church. Um, they are featuring once again this year, Bow the Knee. It's the final year of this um amazing performance anyway we'll talk with him about that and in the five o'clock hour we'll talk with james rosen he is the author of a a new book scalia rise to greatness and it covers the period the first 50 years of his life before becoming a supreme court justice and has access to information never before published we'll talk with james rosen about that when he joins us later in the uh, second hour of today's program. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. Very, not very peaceful, Elon Musk and others have uh, said. They responded after protesters smashed windows at a conservative event. About 100 protesters at the University of California, Davis, surrounded a venue attempting to disrupt an event Tuesday evening, headlined by Turning Point USA founder Charlie Kirk. The event was organized by the school's Turning Point chapter. The protesters, who were mostly wearing black, clashed with law enforcement officers and other students, including attendees of the event, as they smashed windows, hurled eggs, used pepper spray and blocked people from entering the University Credit Union Center where the event was held. Several people responded to Musk, um, his posts, agreeing the protesters were violent and some made comparisons to the January 6th Capitol protest. UC Davis said in a statement after the event that one police officer was injured during the incident. A Russian Su-27 fighter plane collided with a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone over the Black Sea on Tuesday, according to a U.S. defense official. The jet in question was one of two Su-27s flying in tandem when the collision occurred in international airspace over international waters. The drone's propeller was damaged, forcing the unmanned aerial vehicle to ditch in the Black Sea west of Crimea, the U.S. defense official said. The State Department is summoning Russian ambassador to the uh, U.S. Anatolian Toli Anatov to express its strong objections to the intercept. Uh, Ned Price, a spokesman, confirmed to reporters the Su-27 was headed toward Crimea, landed there after this incident. The official said it is unknown if there was any damage to the Su-27, and that's the Russian vehicle or plane. U.S. Um, European Command and U.S. Air Forces in Europe, Air Force Africa, Uh, issued statements on the incident in which they reported the event leading up to the collision and admonished the Russian military for a pattern of dangerous actions in international airspace. The statement read in part at approximately 7.03 a.m., Uh, One of the Russian Su-27 aircraft struck the propeller of the MQ-9, causing U.S. forces to have to bring the MQ-9 down in international waters. Several times before the collision, the Su-27s dumped fuel on and flew in front of the MQ-9 in a reckless, environmentally unsound and unprofessional manner. This incident demonstrates a lack of competence in addition to being unsafe and unprofessional. End quote. Not acceptable. Governor DeSantis dropped a graphic video on trans surgeries after President Biden hit his policies, saying they were um, 
essentially immoral. Pretty bad policy. Canadian-American investor Kevin O'Leary called out the idiot bank managers, and that's a quote, who led Silicon Valley Bank to its demise, further adding that the federal government's response to the collapse unwisely nationalized the banking system. O'Leary, well known by his Mr. Wonderful nickname coined on Shark Tank by fellow investor Barbara Corcoran, said that he doesn't like playing politics, especially in terms of finance. His concern is policy. DEI in the skies, the Air Force has gone on a diversity, equity, inclusion hiring spree, saying the harm is intentional. Uh, A blue collar uh, lobsterman is suing an environmental group for defamation. Environmental groups actions have caused economic harm in the form of lost business, the lawsuit states. Misleading voters, Missouri Democratic Representative Cori Bush is facing a second Federal Election Commission complaint over her campaign security payments to her husband. The newest complaint comes from the Committee to Defeat the President, an anti-Biden super PAC, which alleges that Bush was uh, flouting federal campaign finance laws by paying her new husband, Courtney Merritt, $60,000 for security last year. Merritt does not have a license to perform security functions in the Congresswoman's district. Not a joke. During a ritzy DNC dinner, President Biden says climate change could cause Colorado River to dry up. Post Roe, a Texas man, filed a first-of-its-kind lawsuit against three women who helped his ex-wife obtain an abortion. Right to be safe. Oregon's shortage of public defenders has resulted in hundreds of dropped cases here in the Portland area. But one district attorney said that's a dangerous response. That is a terrible result for public safety and for victims. The Washington County District Attorney Kevin Barton says victims have a right to be safe and to have their cases prosecuted. They have a right to have their day in court, just like a defendant has a right to have their day in court. Almost 800 people are currently waiting for a public defender in Oregon, and 76 of them are behind bars. Of 800, only 76. Some of the cases have sat idle for weeks and even months, according to the Oregon Judicial Department data. Truly grateful, the Biden administration's approval of the oil drilling operation known as the Willow Project over objections from environmental groups is expected to deliver substantial benefits to Alaska's economy and billions in government revenue. The Willow Project is located on Alaska's North Slope in a small portion of what's known as the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska. It has a footprint of about 500 acres, while the NPRA is a $23 million acre area on the North Slope, originally set aside 100 years ago by President Warren Harding as an emergency oil supply for the U.S. Navy, before it was transferred to the Department of the Interior's Bureau of Land Management and opened for potential oil and glass leasing in 1976. Moody's Investor Service downgraded the U.S. banking system to negative following the worst bank failure failure rather since 2008. Following the biggest bank failure since the financial crisis of 2008, Moody Investor Service has downgraded its rating of the U.S. banking system and the latest sign that President Biden's Monday morning attempt to assuage concerns went over like a lead balloon. Moody's, one of the three major rating entities, downgraded its outlook for the U.S. banking system from stable to negative on Tuesday morning to reflect the rapid deterioration in the operating environment following deposit runs at Silicon 
Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate Bank, and Signature Bank, and the failures of SVB and SNY, Moody explained. Rates rose as the Federal Reserve battled an inflation surge that took prices to the highest levels in more than 40 years. Moody said it expects the Fed to continue hiking. The firm said it expects the U.S. economy to fall into recession later this year, further pressuring the industry. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and yeah, we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with James Taylor. He's the worship pastor at Liberty Bible Church in Vancouver, and he's the director of Bow the Knee. Their final year coming up this weekend, sold out performances. We'll tell you more about that when he joins me later this hour. And in the second hour, James Rosen, he's the author of the new book just released this month, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. And it covers the 50 years prior to Justice Scalia becoming a Supreme Court justice. Fascinating with great um, new information in virtually every area surrounding his life. That's coming up in the second hour. Well, a Vermont Christian school has been banned from participating in future tournaments. The school has been excluded from competing um, sanctioned uh, events by the Vermont Principals Association after its girls basketball team forfeited a match against an opposing team that included a male player who identifies as a girl. President Biden signed an executive order enhancing background checks and red flag laws for gun buyers. Sadly, it's um, most likely not legal, but the president uh, issued the executive order on Tuesday. It reinforced background checks for gun buyers and what the White House is promoting as the most comprehensive policy the president can enact without Congress. The order aims to strengthen federal support for red flag laws intended to stop gun sales to people deemed dangerous. Such measures have been passed by 19 states in the District of Columbia. The administration has also taken previous executive action seeking to reduce gun violence. With the order, the administration admits it aims to get the U.S. as close as possible to adopting universal black background checks without having to go through the normal legislative process. Use of red flag laws, which prohibit individuals who pose a threat to themselves or others from obtaining a firearm, will ramp up under the order. The president will direct members of his cabinet to encourage effective use of extreme risk protection orders, including by partnering with law enforcement, health care providers, educators and other community leaders, end quote. The Treasury Department offered the the House Oversight Committee reports on Hunter Biden. The Treasury Department has agreed to provide the House Oversight Committee with suspicious activity reports for the Biden family and their associates. Business Transactions Committee Chairman James Comer announced yesterday. Comer said in a statement to National Review that the department's decision to share the reports with financial institutions are required to file when they detect unusual transactions that could signal illegal activity comes after Treasury officials previously spent two months dragging their feet. Democrats in Congress vociferously opposed the probes run by Republicans into the Biden family, including the president's brothers and his son, Hunter Biden, whose financial dealings are also being scrutinized by federal prosecutors. Ohio sued Norfolk Southern Railway for damages after the train derailment. The Ohio Attorney General's office filed a complaint against Norfolk Southern Railway in federal court on Tuesday, alleging that the company violated hazardous waste and water quality laws and was negligent for causing the train derailment and toxic chemical chemical releases last month in East Palestine, Ohio. The lawsuit adds to the railway's legal woes in the wake of the train derailment and subsequent release of toxic chemicals 
uh, which complainants uh, say included more than one million gallons of hazardous materials. The suit asks the court to require that company pay for future environmental monitoring and reimburse the state for costs associated with its response and for remediation, among other concerns. Local um, uh, uh, local and state authorities are tallying the amount of money that Ohio has spent since the derailment, making it too soon to put a number on the lawsuit. The Environmental Protection Agency is enforcing Norfolk Southern's cleanup and is monitoring the effects of the derailment and chemical release. North Korea filed, uh, fired ballistic missiles in retaliation to joint drills between the U.S. and South Korea. North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles on Tuesday toward waters off its east coast after threatening the U.S. to turn the Pacific Ocean into a firing range if it holds joint military drills with South Korea. North Korea said it fired two cruise missiles from a submarine on Sunday and issued a new threat to mercilessly punish the U.S. over the drills. While North Korea is not barred by United Nations resolutions from cruise missile tests, the launch from a submarine of the rockets would mark a new step in the state's ability to potentially deliver a nuclear weapon that could hit U.S. bases in South Korea and Japan. South Korean and American forces began 11 days of joint drills dubbed Freedom Shield 23 on Monday, which will be held on a scale not seen since 2017 to counter the North's growing threats. North Korea has long bristled at the Allies' drills as a rehearsal for invasion. North Korea's foreign ministry has denounced the planned meeting as the most intensive expression of U.S. hostile policy against Pyongyang and warned it will take the toughest counteraction. Meta is planning to announce 10,000 job cuts. It is, um, it's a second round of cuts. Meta, parent company of Facebook and Instagram, announced on Tuesday that 10,000 employees, roughly 13% of its workforce, would be sent packing and 5,000 openings were being eliminated as the tech giant seeks to slim down amid worsening economic conditions. The widely anticipated job cuts are part of a restructuring that will see the company uh, scrap hiring plans for 5,000 openings, kill off lower priority projects, and flatten layers of middle management. New York AG Letitia James and other elected officials are planning to host a drag queen story hour for children. New York Attorney General Letitia James is hosting the uh, drag story hour in New York City this Sunday that families with children are invited to attend. Now, I fail to see what the benefit of these drag shows that have very adult themes quite often. James recently announced she and other state elected officials will be hosting the drag event geared toward families. Ashley St. Clair weighs in saying the family friendly event will take place at the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender community center. Your tax dollars are hard at work grooming kids. Uh, Libs of TikTok say New York AG Letitia James is holding a drag queen event for children along with a number of other elected officials. Our tax dollars are being used by government officials to fund and promote the sexualization of our children. Drew Barrymore knelt before a trans guest during an interview on her uh, her new show. It just um, the last few years, Democrat idol worshiping has been on display In this case, um, in the case of George Floyd, Anthony Fauci and the transgender movement as a whole, we're seeing the group that uh, on the uh, one hand demands equal rights for women, put biological men on pedestals, giving multiple women's awards to them, allowing them to dominate women's sports and attacking anyone who dares to speak out. But according to some critics, the idol worship has reached a new low thanks to actress, producer and talk show host Drew Barrymore. Barrymore knelt uh, for Dylan 
Um, Mulvaney, a man pretending to be a woman in one of the most bizarre interviews you will ever see. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend you try to see it. Dems are targeting banks while Moody's warns about banks seeking to seize the moment of the Silicon Valley bank collapse as an excuse to expand the federal government's power. Senator Elizabeth Warren, along with several of her colleagues, have targeted the Trump era legislation that raised the too big to fail threshold regulation on banks. Warren claims the bipartisan legislation effectively caused SVB's collapse and called for its repeal. Warren is once again engaged in classic example of that political game of asserting correlation as causation. Uh, Janine Shaheen, rather, who voted for the Trump era bill, observed we need to complete the investigation of what actually happened at Silicon Valley Bank. All the regulation in the world isn't going to fix bad management practices. And it appears that that's one of the problems at SVP or SVB. Meanwhile, speaking of bad management practices, Moody's Investors Service just downgraded the entire U.S. banking sector from stable to negative. Don't let non-citizens vote. Well, the Immigration Reform Law Institute filed a lawsuit against Washington, D.C.'s new law that gives non-U.S. citizens the right to vote in city elections. D.C. passed the measure last October, and this week it goes into effect after Congress failed to overturn it. The IRIL argues that the law automatically dilutes the votes of U.S. citizens on a massive scale, violates the fundamental constitutional right to vote of the plaintiffs, and voids their equal protection of the law. The law in Franchises roughly 42,000 non-citizens, including foreign diplomats, allowing them to vote in D.C. elections. This means that Chinese and Russian diplomats would be allowed to vote in our our nation's capital elections. Talk about a Trojan horse. Well, a school is being punished for upholding the dignity and uniqueness of women's sports. We'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, a conversation with James Taylor, worship pastor at Liberty Bible Church in Vancouver. Bow the knee. This is the final year of that performance. We'll tell you more about it. We'll also talk with James Rosen in the second hour of today's program. He's written a book, the first of two, this one titled Scalia Rise to Greatness, covering the first 50 years prior to becoming a Supreme Court justice. Fascinating book. Newark has has been scammed by a fake country. Here's a story for those social studies students who complained about having to take a geography quiz because they would never need such time-wasting information. Newark, New Jersey Mayor Ras Baraka was recently humiliated after, as a CBS News put it, he invited what he thought was the Hindu nation of uh, Kalasa to Newark City Hall for a cultural trade agreement. The problem is Kalasa doesn't exist. It's a fake nation created by hoaxers. Uh, we're betting Baraka, who was um, an educator in the city's public school system before becoming mayor, wishes he had spent more time looking at the world map. They even had a representative there, and they made presentation from this um, this place, Colossa. Well, Francis celebrates a decade as pontiff, the Roman Catholic Church's current pontiff. He recently celebrated a decade serving as the pope. Pope Francis' tenure has been marked by his willingness to uh, pushed the church's doctrinal boundaries, which he seemed to recognize with an observation regarding the anniversary of the Vatican's Pope cast. These 10 years have been like this, living in tension. Much of that tension is likely tied to comments he uh, made specifically regarding human sexuality, though he noted in the podcast that the gender ideology today is one of the most dangerous ideological colonizations. 
Uh, What makes Francis difficult to pin down is that he appears to, at times, take both sides of opposing arguments. For example, Francis has said there is no contradiction for a priest to marry. Celibacy in the Western Church is a temporary prescription. On the other hand, Francis has also stated, personally, I think that celibacy is a gift to the church. I would say that I do not agree with allowing optional celibacy. No. Well, the question is how much of this living intention is intentional. Gun owners are threatening immediate lawsuits over the president's order, increasing background checks. The ongoing Biden probe revealed a three million dollar payment from a Chinese energy company to a family associate. The Treasury Department has handed over Biden's suspicious activity reports to House GOP. President Biden claims he had an epiphany on same sex marriage as a teen. But there are receipts in which he um, held to a view opposing same-sex marriage well into his political career. President Biden says opposing the mutilation of children is close to sinful. Governor DeSantis stripped a luxurious Florida hotel's liquor license after hosting a lewd drag show with children present. Corporate America has donated $82 billion to BLM-related causes so far. The increase in the mortality rate among kids and teens is the largest in decades. An historic uh, decline in IQ could stem from poor education. (laughs) Well, gee, that seems sort of obvious. A study shows they had to study that. But anyway, an historic decline. New York City ranked the most congested city as motorists spend 10 full days in rush hour traffic per year. China and Russia are deploying space weapons to attack U.S. satellites, warns the U.S. Space Force chief. Well, on this day in history, 44 B.C., Julius Caesar is assassinated by a group of nobles that included Brutus and Cassius. I'm noticing on Facebook a series of uh, salad dressing uh, jars with knives impaling uh, to mark the occasion. 1493, Christopher Columbus arrives back in the Spanish harbor of Palos de la Fontera, two months after concluding his first voyage to the Western Hemisphere. 1913, President Woodrow Wilson meets with about 100 reporters for the first formal presidential press conference. 1916, a U.S. expeditionary force led by Brigadier General John J. Pershing enters Mexico on an ultimately uh, futile mission to capture Pancho Villa, whose raiders attacked Columbus, New Mexico, killing 18 U.S. citizens. 1919, members of the American Expeditionary Force from World War I convene in Paris for a three-day meeting to establish the American Legion. 1937, America's first hospital blood bank opens at Cook County Hospital in Illinois. 1944, during World War II, Allied bombers again raid German-held Monte Cassino. 1977, the U.S. House of Representatives begins a 90-day closed-circuit test to determine the feasibility of showing its sessions on television. 1985, the first Internet domain name, Symbolics.com, is registered by the Symbolics Computer Corporation of Massachusetts. 2005, former WorldCom chief Bernard Ebers is convicted in New York of engineering the largest corporate fraud in U.S. history, at least up until 2005. 2009, lawmakers on Capitol Hill are outraged after learning that $165 million in executive bonuses are being paid by bailout insurance giant American International Group. 2018, the Trump administration accuses Moscow of an elaborate plot to hack into America's electric grid, factories, water supply, and air travel. The U.S. also targets Russians with sanctions for alleged election meddling for the first time since President Trump took office.
Well, when asked if the U.S. Treasury securities will continue to be a good investment as the national uh, debt increases, Senator Mike Braun said that over time, if the U.S. keeps borrowing 30 percent of what we spend here, bad business plan. He added that he does not see uh, any of the people that have been running this place that have a clue how to fix it. Well, on March 15th at the U.S. Capitol, Biden's budget uh, called for increasing the debt to $50.7 trillion by 2033. Do you think U.S. Treasury securities will continue to be a good investment if we keep running the debt? Well, Senator Braun responded, I'm not sure about your figures, but it's going up. Let's put it that way. I think that the full faith and credit of this country is going to be in place. But over time, if we keep living off of future generations by borrowing 30 percent of what we spend here, it's a bad business plan. So what that's going to mean is we are going to be paying higher interest rates increasingly because it gets riskier even when you are the biggest economy in the world, at least for now, the senator said. He went on, you can't abuse it year after year through the federal government. And sadly, I don't see any of the people that um, have been running this place uh, that have any clue how to fix it uh, or have the political will to do so. As reported by Senator Uh, Chuck Grassley, the ranking member of the Senate Budget Committee, the Biden budget would increase debt held by the public from twenty five point nine trillion dollars in twenty twenty three to forty three point six trillion dollars by twenty thirty three. Gross debt rises from thirty two point seven trillion dollars at the close of this year to fifty point seven trillion dollars by twenty thirty three. The debt held by the public as of March 13th is $24.6 trillion, and the gross debt, public debt plus intergovernmental holdings, currently stands at $31.4 trillion. Excuse me. Yes, trillion. When the government spends more money than it takes in, it's called deficit spending. To get those funds, the Treasury sells securities with interest. These securities can include Treasury bills, Treasury bonds, and Treasury notes. The national debt, the gross debt, as explained by the Treasury Department, is the accumulation of this borrowing along with associated interests owed to investors who purchased these securities. Well, because the excessive spending in the uh, uh, in the uh, Biden budget proposal, the national debt would rise to a projected fifty point seven trillion dollars by twenty twenty, rather twenty thirty three. That's a 55% increase in gross debt over 10 years. You might want to explain that to your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren who will wonder how on earth we put them in that position. Well, all schools like to say that they're training the next generation of leaders, but too many institutions of legal education have become laboratories of divisiveness rather than leadership. A series of recent videos from law schools, including Yale and Stanford, capture screaming students insulting and disrupting accomplished litigators, legal scholars, even federal judges. Evidence is rapidly accumulating that law schools across America are failing in their basic mission to teach students how to become good citizens, let alone Good lawyers in a nation of over 300 million Americans were bound to disagree on a wide number of issues. We're committed to the same fundamental principles of liberty and equality, but we disagree fervently about what those principles require in practice. We weigh um, uh, we weigh uh, competing considerations differently. And these uh, divergent values um, lead to conflict. Our nation's founders anticipated those concerns. The Federalists promised that the former colonies would be better off together, that we would enjoy numerous economic, diplomatic, security and other advantages that flow from scale. In response, the anti-Federalists worried that no republic anywhere near our size and 
uh, had ever been formed. They feared that we were too device, uh, too verse rather, maybe device is the right um, word, and would bicker endlessly. They believed we would be better off apart. And it seems that's the direction we are heading toward, sadly, in these days. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with James Taylor, worship pastor from Liberty Bible Church of the Nazarene in Vancouver. Bow the knee. The weekend begins on Thursday. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, many of you are familiar with Bow the Knee. It has been an incredible performance uh, right around Easter time for several years. It's the dramatic story of the death and resurrection of Jesus as seen through the eyes of Anthony, a Roman centurion, ordered to carry out his crucifixion. This is a uh, a performance that represents in the Vancouver area a number of churches. And here to talk with us about that is James Taylor, who is the worship pastor at Liberty Bible. And he's also the director of Bow the Knee. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. Thanks for having me on. Now, I'm just thrilled that Bow the Knee is back. The pandemic, of course, put a, a damper on many things. Is this your first or second year since the pandemic So this is the first year that we will do it live since the pandemic. Ah, that's what I thought. Now, talk a little bit about the uh, the collaboration that Bow the Knee represents, because it's not just Liberty uh, Bible Church of the Nazarene, but a number of churches are involved in this uh, very dramatic and um, epic performance. Yeah, over the years, we've had probably more than probably more than 40 different churches represented in the cast, choir and crew. And it's just a tremendous um, opportunity uh, for the uh, you know for the church family as a whole to come together and and lots of great relationships, lots of great family atmosphere. You know, I think when people hear um, "Bow the Knee" is a performance that's put on by a number of churches in our area, they have certain expectations of what that must be like. Now, I have gone to uh, performances of this uh, of this presentation, uh, and it exceeded my expectations rather dramatically. Can you try to paint a picture so that listeners who haven't been will have some idea of what you are actually uh, producing? Well, one of the first things that almost everybody uh, who sees it for the first time says is. I thought this was going to be a church play. <laughs> exactly. Not. Uh, but it is, and it is an immersion experience. Uh, when you are, you are pulled into, into a story full of characters, the, um, the, the sets, the lighting, the sound, the, the costuming is, is just first rate. But the story is so compelling, and people find different characters that they can relate to and identify with throughout the presentation And uh, it it just kind of grabs you and pulls you in. And before you know it, you're at the end. And it really is an immersive um, performance because you're sitting in the auditorium and there are people around you that are part of this performance. The music is incredible. The costuming is incredible. And again, we're talking about um, uh, 35, um, a choir of some 35 people a number of performances um, that represent a number of churches from our area. This really is amazing. How did this begin some years ago? Oh, my goodness. So um, (laughs) I've been here for 21 years now, and at the end of my first year, I was searching for something, and I came across the song, uh, Bow the Knee, um, and then I got into the musical, and there was the duet between Jesus and Anthony. And that song grabbed Mm. me, and I I thought, we have to do that. And we started out with, a, with just a very minimal little set and, and about 30 or 35 people involved total. 
And now cast, choir, and crew, we're well over 300, and uh, the reach is tremendous. Um, and it is now, it's now a, we, we have pulled music and, and everything, six different uh, musical sources. We've written probably almost uh, two-thirds of the script ourselves now, and uh, the story has really evolved. Now, the sad news is, I think this year's performances are sold out. Uh, they are. Uh, they sold out so quickly. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a little, little mind-numbing mind how fast it went. Well, and that's a real testament to the quality of performance and the fact that it represents such a broad swath of the community in terms of the, um, the churches, 25-plus local churches that are involved, all volunteering to uh, create this beautiful picture of the family of God telling the story of Jesus Christ. What an amazing feat this is. And uh, this being the, the first year back live since the uh, the pandemic. Now, there's also a rumor that this may be the final year that Bow the Knee will be presented in our community. Well, that that has been in our planning, um, that, that this would be the final year. And, of course, we always have, have always said that if, you know, if God changes the plan, of course, we're going to listen to God, of course. Uh, but but this is the plan that it would be our final year. And, and uh, we've, we've had a, um, a change in, in, in senior pastor, and uh, we have a tremendous senior pastor um, uh, named Keith Ritter. And uh, we're just excited to follow uh, him and, and where God leads him. And uh, so at this point, that's our plan. And uh, we're, we're charging full steam ahead unless God says, I got something else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my my um, old pastor used to say, if the Lord says the same, that's that's the plan. <laughs> that's <right. laughs> you know, this has really been a gift uh, from our community to our community over the, the many years that this yes. uh, performance has been taking place. And it is such a beautiful presentation of the details leading up to the crucifixion and ultimate resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I really want to commend you. Uh, for faithfully presenting this story so well. I think for people who come to a performance like that and haven't been in a production like that, we may underestimate what is required to pull this together, the, the weeks and weeks of work that go into it. My guess is as one performance uh, season ended, you're already beginning to think about and uh, talk about the next one to come. The the dozens and dozens, and this year, 300 voice choir, connecting all the different churches, learning the music, rewriting things, putting it together, all the rehearsals that go into that, the costuming, and that's another aspect that is really well done in this performance. This has been a labor of love and a gift to our community, and I want to commend you and all of the uh, the volunteers, whether they're behind the uh, the scenes with lighting or putting the costumes together, or they're the people that we see during the performance. I want to thank you for your commitment and faithfully ministering to our community and telling the story of Jesus so well. Well, thank you, Georgine. It, it, it really is um, uh, a testament to a lot of amazing people. And I, I, uh, if I've done anything well, it's that I've surrounded myself with amazing, talented people, and their hearts are, are, are incredible. And they just they just put so much of themselves into, into every performance and all the preparation. And uh, if it wasn't for them, I'd just be a guy uh, waving my arms and talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done the math um, over the years of this uh, presentation? How many people have been involved? How many audience members have, have come and experienced? And I think experience, viewing isn't the right word, experience uh, this presentation? Well, we... Uh, we tried to. 
We know it's in the tens of thousands who have come to watch over the years. Uh, we know thousands of people have made commitments, uh, either first-time commitments to the Lord or, or recommitting their lives or, or, or just reconnecting with their, with their church family community. Um, and the number of people that have been involved in it over the years is also in, in the thousands. And, and so it's, it's just had quite the reach. It, it exceeded all expectations, and, and it, it put us firmly in the middle of what we just call God territory all mm-hmm. the time. So it was so far beyond us. Yeah, it's a good place to be. And it is amazing to see how God takes our simple efforts um, and somehow produces something that does exceed our expectations and ministers to the community in ways that we had hoped for, but again, exceeds our expectations. But that requires availability, uh, the sacrifice of time and resource. And my guess is it's a it's a bit of a challenge on the t- the church to make the facility available, to have people rehearsing. That It's costly in ways that um, it, it doesn't balance out with the eternal value of it all, but it it is a sacrifice that the church has made to open its doors to the broader community. And again, I just want to thank uh, Liberty for uh, making this uh, presentation a part of their history and a part of our community's history and blessing so many people. You know, it's been our it's been our privilege and pleasure, and and we're just looking forward to whatever God has next for us. All right. Well, the performances begin this weekend. Uh, they start Thursday. Uh, the Thursday and Friday performances are at seven, and Saturday and Sunday are at five. And if you have tickets, get here early. That's oh, absolutely. Sure. I've experienced coming late. Not a good idea. <laughs> Not a good idea. <laughs> and for those of us who don't have tickets, if you just remember to pray for Liberty Bible, that God would give them clear direction what uh, what's next in their future under the new leadership, and just bless them. Maybe you might want to send a note and just say thank you for how you've served our community, but just keep them in your prayers. Uh, James Taylor, worship pastor and director of Balvany, thank you so much for joining us once again. We're looking forward to seeing what God has next. Thanks, Georgine. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, we've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And when we return, a conversation with James Rosen. He is the author of Scalia, Rise to Greatness, just released days ago. The book is published by Regnery and is quite different from anything that you've read or has been published on Justice Scalia to date. That's coming up in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, many of us remember Justice Antonin Scalia for his commitment to the Constitution, his razor sharp wit, or his unlikely friendship with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But little has been written about his pre-Supreme Court years. Well, award-winning reporter James Rosen reveals never-before-reported information in the definitive biography, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. It's the most comprehensive and detailed account of Scalia's monumental accomplishments in the 50 years preceding his appointment to the Supreme Court in 1986. It's a great book. Uh, Scalia remains one of the most consequential figures in American history whose philosophy and judicial opinions defined our legal era. And I'm just delighted to welcome James Rosen. He's the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. He's a veteran Washington correspondent and best-selling historian. He reported for Fox News for nearly two decades, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and National Review, among other outlets. His previous books include The Strongman, John Mitchell, and The Secrets of Watergate, and Cheney, One-on-One, A Candid Conversation with America's Most controversial statesman. We're delighted to have him join us today to talk about his latest book. James Rosen, thanks for joining us. 
Georgine, thank you for that very kind introduction. Well, I have to say, I'm I'm honored to have you with us. I've watched your career over many, uh, many years and uh, delighted thank to have you. you. Now, this is a book that's very different from uh, much of what we may have read about Scalia. Most of the writing or um, what we've read about him has to do with his tenure as a Supreme Court justice. You spent five years researching for this book. Talk a little bit about the material that you uncovered and why this period of his life. So, Georgine, again, thank you for having me. This book is called Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. It chronicles the first 50 years of Justice Scalia's life. It ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. So if not before then, Georgine, I hope to return with you about two years from now (laughs) to cover the second volume, which will chronicle uh, the justices' years on the Supreme Court. Uh, What I found was that the two existing biographies of Antonin Scalia that are out there, both of which were published uh, in his lifetime, one of which he cooperated with extensively, the other not at all, both came to pretty much the same place, which was uh, pretty clear and open in their hostility to Justice Scalia and his conduct and his jurisprudence and his legacy. Uh, So this is the first biography of Antonin Scalia published since his death. It is, as you say, the most comprehensive because whole portions of his career in academia and also his very important service in the Nixon and Ford presidencies uh, were either overlooked uh, in the previous biographies, given short shrift, or they were cast in the most tendentious light. Uh, And so this is also, as I like to say, the first accurate biography Mm. of Antonin Scalia, because it's the first admiring one. You asked about all the different new uh, documents that that are in this book. Uh, There are just whole archives of new documents in this book that were either unavailable to or overlooked by the previous hostile biographers. One example is uh, in his seventh term on the Supreme Court, 1992, Justice Scalia asked a female attorney who he had known for some years to visit him in chambers and to conduct there a a secret oral history of his life. Uh, That oral history runs dozens of pages with the justice looking back on his life. It wasn't unsealed until after his death in 2018. This is the first biography to make use of it. Uh, we have his declassified FBI files, which are fascinating, uh, and which went hundreds and hundreds of pages, chiefly because as he rose through the executive and judicial branches, Scalia was subjected to four FBI background checks within 14 years. And as I say in the book, would that all lives paid such close scrutiny would reward with such superlative testimonials, because hundreds of pages of the FBI agents heard nothing but, this is the most intelligent man I've ever met. This is the most honest and incorruptible man I've ever met. This is not just a fit candidate to be a federal judge. This is the perfect candidate to be a federal judge. And then lastly, uh, also uh, not lastly, really, but the last one I'll mention for now is that everyone's familiar with the famous friendship between Justice Mm -hmm. Scalia and uh, liberal justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, This has been celebrated in stage plays and in operas. Uh, I saw a life coach recently suggesting that each of us should go out and find the Ginsburg to our inner Scalia. (laughs) Uh, The fact is that this famous friendship uh, celebrated for its civility among ideological combatants uh, didn't really take didn't really take off on the Supreme Court. It began and really blossomed when the two Ginsburg and Scalia served as judges on one rung below the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. At one time, you had a real murderer's row, Georgine, that consisted of Robert Bork, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, Kenneth Starr. Lawrence Silberman, all serving on that that same court at the same time. And I went through Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers, 220 boxes at the Library of Congress, 
And while her Supreme Court papers are closed, and almost all of Justice Scalia's papers are closed, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers from her tenure on the D.C. Circuit are open. And so are those of Robert Bork and others who I read on that, on that court. And they have lots of examples of Scalia's handwriting that are so far, and his, his memos and so forth, draft opinions that remain closed in his own papers up at Harvard Law Library. And so this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, is the first to publish what I call the RBG Nino Papers. These are the handwritten notes, the letters, the correspondence, the memos, the draft opinions that flew back and forth between the chambers of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia when they were both appellate judges uh, from 82 to 86 before both get elevated to the Supreme Court. And not only do these papers find these two legal geniuses squaring off over the fine points of the First Amendment and the other uh, uh, profound legal issues that came before them, but it captures their wit, uh, their affection for each other, and really the birth and the blossoming of this celebrated friendship. And you could read it for the first time in Scalia Rise to Greatness. Mm. Now, you covered the Supreme Court as a reporter, and you knew Justice Scalia personally. Is that correct? Yeah, I was never a Supreme Court correspondent per se, but I covered a number of oral arguments and, uh, and important cases there for sure. And yes, I did know Justice Scalia. Uh, one of the first things I did, Georgine, when I first came to Washington as a young reporter to become a Washington correspondent at the time for Fox News was to write to Justice Scalia and ask for an interview. This commenced between us an unusual and I think very amusing at times that about two years. Excerpts from that correspondence will appear in the second volume. Um, we also had lunch a couple of times, one-on-one, just the two of us, at his favorite place, now long gone, called the AV Ristorante Italiano, a fairly modest Italian restaurant he'd been going to for 30 years, 40 years at that point. Uh, and we drank wine together, and he made me eat off of his plate. Uh, he was encouraging me to take some vegetables off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I couldn't. Come on, come on, come on. So now I'm shoveling Justice Scalia's vegetables into my mouth. This was 1999. <laughs> he even gave me rides back to my office in his car, and I subsequently confirmed Georgine through uh, classmates of his back in the 1950s who had traveled to debate tournaments with him and through Supreme Court clerks well into the 21st century that their experience being a passenger in Antonin Scalia's car was also, as it was for me, slightly scary. <laughs> when I told one of his clerks that he had driven me back to my office twice, uh, the clerk said to me, God help you. Uh, so I did know him personally. Uh, we weren't the closest of friends, but you get a sense for someone when you have lunch with them twice and you drink wine and you share a meal like that. And uh, he was just so generous to a young reporter that I resolved at that time that someday I would write about this man. The, the substantive discussions we had over lunch, which were fascinating and wide ranging, will remain off the record. Uh, but the correspondence will be excerpted in the second volume. Once again, we're talking with James Rosen. He has written a fascinating new book that covers a period of Justice Scalia's life that has yet to be covered. Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. So do stay with us. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with James Rosen. He is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax and is a veteran Washington correspondent and best-selling historian. We're joining, uh, we're talking, I should say, about his latest book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. It's the most comprehensive and detailed account of Scalia's monumental accomplishments, 
in the 50 years preceding his appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1986. And by the way, there is a, a book coming that will cover that period as well. Now, uh, you um, write about some of the key people you interviewed who gave you previously unpublished insights into Justice Scalia's personal and professional life. Who are some of these key people? Perhaps the most important, uh, one of the most important interviewees in Scalia Rise to Greatness, Georgine, is Father Robert Connor, an Opus Dei priest who was one of three surviving classmates from Scalia's high school, high school graduating class in 1953 that I could locate, uh, and who's still with us today. He's in his mid to late 80s. He's still actively preaching Opus Dei and blogging about it and, and quite sharp of memory and locution and logic. And when I interviewed him in 2020, the first thing I asked Father Connor was whether he'd ever been interviewed uh, by anybody else, including the FBI, about his lengthy relationship with Justice Scalia, which extended from their uh, freshman year of high school uh, all the way, but for an interregnum, uh, to the day that Scalia died. And, uh, and he said no. He certainly would remember if anyone had interviewed him, certainly the FBI. So the story he told me, and I'm about to tell you, uh, has never been reported before. Uh, but uh, in 1959, in the, in the summer of 1959, when uh, the two students were now uh, in their early 20s, um, they had been very close, Scalia and Connor. They had uh, played in the uh, basketball together at Xavier High School, a Jesuit military academy where Scalia was valedictorian in 1953. They had played marching band together. Scalia had set Bob Connor up on a date at one point. Uh, Scalia was no stranger to the Connor home. When Scalia was a, uh, a teenager, he would frequently appeared on radio and television programs of the 1950s that were geared towards students, quiz programs, debate programs. And Connor's own dad used to say to him when, when Bob Connor missed one of these appearances, oh, you should have seen it. Scalia really gave it to him this week. So Antonin <laughs> Scalia had fans via electronic media as a teenager in the early 1950s. Come the summer of 1959, they don't see each other that much, but they're friends still. And uh, Bob Connor makes a decision that he's going to drop out of med school and go study Opus Dei in Rome. Mrs. Connor, his mother, is distraught, thinking that her son is throwing his future away. So she summons to the Connor home on Downley Road on the south side of the street in Queens uh, in that summer of 1959, two men whom she thought might be able to talk sense into her son. One was a Jesuit priest named Father Morrison who showed up. And then as Father Connor recounted this to me, um, again, this, is, this story has never been told anywhere else. He was stunned when he was sitting in the upstairs bedroom of his brother, uh, Jim Connor, and in walks his friend Nino Scalia. And the first thing Scalia says to him is, what are you doing? Scalia was 22 years old. He had finished his second year at Harvard Law. And he says to his friend Bob Connor, what are you doing? And Connor says, I'm going to go to Rome and I'm going to study Opus Dei. And I asked Father Connor, devout Catholic that he was, did Scalia seem to have some knowledge of what Opus Dei was? And he told me, I explained to him that it is that Opus Dei, we study the, we find the sanctity in everyday things, in everyday life. Scalia nodded and said, sounds good to me. And then again, this has never been reported before until this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness. Uh, Father Con Bob Connor says to Scalia, what are you doing? And Scalia answers, I'm going to the White House. And Connor says, how are you going to do that? Oh, excuse me, I've messed it up. He says, I'm going to the Supreme Court. And Connor says, how are you going to do that? And Scalia mentioned that he had a law firm job lined up in Ohio. And, and Father Connor couldn't bring the name of it to him to, in the interview. He said, James, it was a law firm in Ohio. I said, yes, Jones Day, which in fact was where Scalia spent his first six years practicing in the private sector 
um, after Harvard Law. He says, yes, that was at Jones Day. He told me, Jones Day has a Washington office. I will be sent to Washington, and I will rise. I said, did, it, did, you, did you consider it fanciful or comical when Scalia said, I'm going to the Supreme Court? He said, no, no, Nino was driven. I said, did you consider that it, he felt it as a divine calling? He said, I bet. And the way Father Connor described it to me was, it was a convergence of two transcendent moments, almost like a shared epiphany, where the two friends reconnect, and one says to the other, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to religion. And the other says back to him, to Scalia, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to the Supreme Court. I will be sent to Washington, and I will rise. And I really believe that this interview with this unimpeachable witness, Father Connor, uh, an ordained Opus Dei priest since 1964, uh, is decisive on this point of when Antonin Scalia first began to harbor within his the ambition to serve on the Supreme Court. Uh, Scalia's defenders, his most ardent defenders, his, uh, his family, his clerks, others in academia, have always been leery of attributing this ambition to Scalia too soon in life because they feel that it might contribute to a false narrative that's been promulgated in the previous biographies that I call the careerist narrative, the idea that Scalia's rise to the Supreme Court was not the product of his deep Catholic faith, uh, his uh, extraordinary upbringing, uh, his, his industry and his genius, but rather was the result of him tailoring his activities and his means to curry favor with more powerful people who could aid his rise. The fact is that there are some people, Georgine, who are gifted and blessed early in life to know where they want to go. Mm-hmm. Charles Schulz, the creator of Peanuts, uh, has said that he knew that by the age of five that he wanted to as a cartoonist. Antonin Scalia understood early on, we now know from Father Connor, what the Supreme Court was and why he belonged there. And all of us, including those closest to Scalia, his most ardent defenders, are better off that he did. Absolutely. Justice Scalia was one of the country's most prominent Catholics. Uh, He was the product of a Jesuit education. Um, How did his faith contribute to his rise? And perhaps you've answered that question in part just by sharing that story. No, it's a great question. And again, this being the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia, the first that isn't out to tear him down, uh, the first that starts from the point of view that he was a profoundly important and, and great American. Uh, this, is the, this book is the most uh, detailed and comprehensive look at his Catholic faith uh, and how it shaped him. Uh, and so, yes, he was valedictorian at Xavier High School, the unusual hybrid of a Jesuit private school and a military academy. Then he was uh, valedictorian again of another Jesuit institution, Georgetown University. Uh, and the, the, we have to note the influence of his parents, of course. His father was an immigrant who came to this country in 1920, not speaking English and with only $400 in his pocket. And he made of himself a renowned professor of Romance languages. Scalia's mother was herself the daughter of Italian immigrants, and she became a schoolteacher. So from the liturgy of the Catholic Church and its emphasis on Uh, immutable, inviolable sacred texts. And from his father's influence, his father having written about the perils uh, for the original meaning of a given text when it is translated or interpreted, um, perhaps by a dishonest translator or interpreter into a new language. And then from his mother, who who emphasized in her own way a, a veneration for the classics and grammar and all the things that we note from Scalia's opinions, all these influences uh, instilled in Antonin Scalia a profound reverence for the original meaning of texts, particularly sacred texts. And he carried that forward with him uh, into his career as a judge and then a justice of the Supreme Court. 
At the same time, Scalia bristled when anyone ever suggested uh, that he tried to graft his Catholicism into his opinions. He said his modest role as a judge or a justice on the Supreme Court was simply to find the original meaning of the Constitution or a given statute and apply it and to use the text of that constitutional provision or, or statute as the best way to, to, to divine the original meaning. Uh, and he would never think of, uh, of, of um, intervening in that process by trying to write Catholicism into the application of the law. The, he used to say, there's no such thing as a Catholic hamburger. He said the closest we could come to that would be a hamburger that is made perfectly. <laughs> We're talking with James Rosen. He is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, and he is the author of the uh, a book on Justice Scalia that is unlike any book you have seen to date. Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Quick break. We'll be back to uh, continue our conversation with James Rosen. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with James Rosen, he is the author of a new book on Justice Scalia that you must read, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Uh, Rosen is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, Max rather, and is a veteran Washington correspondent and best-selling historian. This is a fascinating book because it covers the period of Justice Scalia's life before he became a justice on the Supreme Court. What is Justice Scalia's legacy in terms of the law and American life? Because I don't think it can be overstated how significant his role was and continues to be um, in uh, U.S. jurisprudence. It's a great question, Georgine. And the readers of Scalia Rise to Greatness will quickly find that this is written for all readers. It's not just for lawyers, but it does try to make the concepts, uh, the legal concept that Scalia championed, uh, digestible. Uh, and that was something that was very important to him, too, that his opinions should be ones that could be read by non-lawyers. Uh, until Scalia came along, there prevailed in the law a liberal notion called the living constitution, the idea that the constitution and its meaning was somewhat elastic and, and could expand uh, to take account of modern phenomena that the founders could never have invented, such as the Internet or nuclear weapons, uh, and to, uh, to imbue uh, the Constitution with this living quality, this expansive quality, liberal judges and justices would look beyond the text of the law, and they would cite the legislative intent behind the law. What was said in all those House and Senate floor debates what was printed in those committee reports that were generated as a bill snaked its way through the process. Scalia stood athwart all of that, uh, and he championed a concept called originalism. His idea was that uh, we should always adhere, judges, when they are engaged in their central business, which is interpreting the meaning of the Constitution or statutes passed 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 150 years ago, that judges should not expand the meaning of those documents, those legal texts, uh, to account for new, new phenomena. If you want to account for new phenomena, Scalia argued, you should go to Congress and pass a law that deals with nuclear weapons or the Internet. Um, to uh, assign new meaning, some expansive new meaning to an existing text of, or legal text like the Constitution or statute, uh, Scalia argued was in essence to go back in time and rob a previous generation of its actual democratic rights and self-governance. Uh, let's imagine that right now, listening to us, there's somebody who very much approved of, of a measure that President Biden signed into law last year. Let's take the, the protections for same-sex marriage. 
Um, how would those who support the enactment of that law as it was written feel if 10 years from now or 50 years from now, a judge unelected could come along and say, well, actually, that law should mean this, something larger or more expansive or something different from what it meant in the time. Uh, and the best way to divine the original meaning of a constitutional provision or statute, Scalia said, was just to look at the text, not the ephemera of the legislative process or what somebody said on the Senate floor or in a committee report, which nobody ever voted on. What they, the, the legislative intent was, was the text of the law that they voted on and that a president signed. These two concepts of original considered revolutionary when Scalia introduced them. By the time he died, Georgine, no one to figure than the Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, uh, an appointee of Barack Obama, uh, stated that as a result of Scalia's revolution, so to speak, quote, we are all originalists now. And this really does have influence on every area of American life because of the way that Scalia changed how lawyers uh, approach the law, argue the law, and how judges and justices decide the law, and even how lawmakers write the law. Really quite remarkable. You mentioned uh, Bork earlier. Uh, can you talk a little bit about their relationship and how Scalia really was the beneficiary of the the essential lynching that, that Bork received in his confirmation process? Well, the two men were great friends. Their families were friends. Gene Scalia, the, the justice's son, who's a prominent attorney in his own right, former Trump cabinet official, told me that one time when he was growing up uh, and the Scalia's had had some folks over their, their house, when everyone left, uh, his dad, Antonin Scalia, wheeled around and said to Gene, this is why you study and work hard in school, so you can grow up and you can have friends like Bob Bork. But they just thought the world of each other. Um, uh, their, their relationship suffered a rift in 1984 when both were judges on the Court of Appeals and Bork wrote an opinion about the First Amendment that called for judges to apply some evolution to the principles of the First Amendment to take account of modern phenomena in libel law, and uh, that this should happen even if it tended to admit into the process a certain measure of judicial selectivity uh, and, and individual judicial uh, preference. And this was like heresy to Scalia's ears. Uh, this was sounding a lot like the imperial judiciary that he and Bork had spent years denouncing. And so Scalia wrote a, an opinion, a concurrence, just to take Bork. And it caused a rift between them. Bork still was bitter about this, even as late as 1989, after politics and fate had settled with cruel finality, the rivalry between them as to who was going to be on the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, in a book published in 1989, uh, Bork still complained about Scalia's concurrence in that opinion, in that case. Uh, and just as that cracks were forming in, in Scalia's bond with Bob Bork, um, his, his friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg began to blossom. I'm very proud that Robert Bork Jr. posted on Facebook that he's read the book and that uh, his father figures prominently in it and that he learned from the book things about his father's relationship with Scalia that even he didn't know. Uh, that means a lot to me. Oh, Absolutely. Do you think um, Justice Scalia could have been uh, successfully nominated for the Supreme Court if he were uh, brought forward today? You know, having laid out his theory of originalism and how latter-day sensibilities should never be grafted onto existing works or canons of work, um, I'm going to pass on an opportunity <laughs> uh, to place Antonin Scalia in, uh, in 2023. I would like to note, though, just because we haven't gotten to it, and I know our time is getting short, uh, you ask about the legacy of Antonin Scalia. It's not just from his time as a judge. 
He worked in the Nixon and Ford administrations. In the Nixon administration in 1971, Scalia was hired in his 30s to serve as the general counsel to a brand new agency called the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. And uh, there was a recognition that telecom was the future and that the federal policy on it was spread across so many agencies it needed to be brought under administrative control of the White House. Uh, And I'm the first researcher, and you'll this in Scalia Rise to Greatness, to get a hold of all of Antonin Scalia's papers from that time in the early 70s when he was working on telecom issues. And he wrote one paper called The Society, in which he outright predicted the Internet. He talked about how users of remote terminals would have access to hundreds of TV channels, would do their banking from the same portal, uh, and would have, be able to retrieve information from just about any library in the world. He also predicted the attendant privacy concerns that would come with it. And what Scalia and the man who hired him, Tom Whitehead, who was the first director of this agency and a genius in his own right, what they did was they introduced the free market principles of competition into the launching of domestic space satellites, which previously had only been done by one company called ComSat. And after they got done with their so-called open skies policy, any company with the requisite technical prowess and capital reserves could launch a domestic space satellite. This is really what turbocharged the telecom revolution that grew into what we have today. Uh, and then in the Ford administration, Scalia was an assistant attorney general. At that time, the post-Watergate era, there were reckless and greedy ideas flying in every direction uh, from Democrats in Congress and liberal news media to try to emasculate the presidency after Watergate. And Scalia and a few other conscientious conservative lawyers of the time Uh, understood that after Watergate and its subsidiary scandals faded, the country would still need a strong executive for the future. Scalia helped preserve those powers, and he also worked a lot on classified matters, including covert operations, which at a certain point after Watergate, they started running for approval. All covert operations they wanted to conduct passed the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel, who was Antonin Scalia. And one story told in this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, just out now, never told before, is that on the afternoon of April 30, 1975, the Ford White House called up Antonin Scalia and said, we will need a legal opinion from you uh, within a few hours' time as to whether it is lawful under the War Powers Act for us to land our helicopters, the military's helicopters, on the U.S. Embassy in Saigon and evacuate our personnel as Saigon fell. That's April 30, 1975. Scalia gave the, lawful, the, the opinion that it was lawful. But as he said, and this is published here in Scalia Rise to Greatness for the first time, I wondered to myself, would they have called off the operation on advice of counsel if I hadn't said it was lawful? What is this world coming to? Mm. Mm. Well, you have unearthed previously unpublished writing from every phase of Scalia's career and interviewed his family, classmates, students, government colleagues, priests, poker buddies, hunting companions, <laughs> fellow jurists. Uh, you corresponded, as you mentioned earlier, and dined with the justice. You even braved the streets of D.C. as a nervous passenger in his uh, famously speedy BMW. And the result is a masterly account that reads like a novel and it sheds new light on the life, the mind, the career, faith and legacy of the man whom family and friends called Nino. Thank you for the work that you have done and for taking the time to introduce this great work to our listeners. I would encourage them to uh, take advantage of the opportunity to learn about the the real Scalia prior to his uh, position on the U.S. Supreme Court. The book is just released, published by Regnery, and I would encourage you to to pick it up. Jane uh, Rosen, thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, you've been very kind to me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, the book, Scalia. 
Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I talked about this story some time ago. It's just been about a week or so, but a Christian school has been barred from sporting events after their girls team refused to play against a male who was a trans student from another school. Well, the Christian school, it's a high school in Vermont that forfeited the girls basketball game because of the opposing team had a biological male player has been suspended from participating in future athletic events. They believed as a matter of conviction to play against the male as if he were a female would have violated their um, their convictions. Well, the Vermont Principals Association announced this week that Mid-Vermont Christian School is prohibited from participating in incoming sports events because of the school's refusal to play the Long Trail Mountain Lions last month. Well, VPA said that the... Uh, School's decision to forfeit the game in late February goes against the association's policies, specifically their commitment to racial, gender, fair and disability awareness and their policy on gender identity. Well, VPA, and that's the Vermont Principals Association, their policies document um, states that the association and its member schools must support an environment in our activities and programs that promotes respect for and appreciation of racial, gender, sexual orientation, religious and ethnic differences, and is disability aware, end quote. With these easy to implement strategies, you can make this um, your policy, they suggested. Well, additionally, the VPA prohibits uh, discrimination based on a student's actual or perceived sex and gender, with gender including a person's actual or perceived sex, as well as gender identity and expression. Now, my guess is uh, the Christian high school, uh, Vermont's um, uh, Christian high school, would have been aware of this, but perhaps didn't anticipate this issue would confront them. Well, the student's home school will determine the eligibility of a student, seeking to participate in the interscholastic athletics in a manner consistent with their gender identity, where the student's gender identity does not correspond to their sex assigned at birth. The policy went on. The superintendent or designee will confirm the gender identity asserted for purposes of trying out for an interscholastic schools team through documentation from the parent, guardian, guidance counselor or a doctor a psychologist, counselor, or other medical personnel. A medical diagnosis shall not be required, end quote. Well, the Christian school justified the refusal to play against Long Trail by arguing that they had an unfair advantage by having a biological male on their roster. We withdrew from this tournament because we believe playing against an opponent with a biological male jeopardizes the fairness of the game and the safety of our players. They were citing other examples where male athletes who were trans, identified as trans, injured female players. While allowing biological males to participate in women's sports sets a bad precedent for the future of women's sports in general, they went on to say. Well, in recent years, there has been much controversy over scholastic sports allowing trans-identified individuals to participate in events based on their preferred gender identity rather than their biological sex. Now, this is no threat to male athletics, but it certainly is to female athlete athletics because the male has a significant advantage just biologically, physically, 
Well, last month, the Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit granted an en blanc hearing for four female high school track runners who sued the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference in 2020 after being forced to compete against biological males. Selena Soule, Chelsea Mitchell, Ashley Nicoletti, and Alana Smith, they argued in the suit, the lawsuit, that they were wrongfully deprived of athletic opportunities when they were forced to compete against two boys who identified as female. Now, girls have lost scholarships, opportunity, and awards since this um, uh, change has occurred. Well, last December, the Second Circuit panel ruled against the female athletes, concluding their lawsuit was moot since they had all since graduated from high school. But, of course, for those girls who are in high school now, they were trying to make the point. Currently, 18 states require athletes to compete on sports teams that correspond with their biological sex rather than their stated gender identity. They are Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and West Virginia. Absent. Oregon and Washington. Most recently, a judge in Minnesota ruled that USA powerlifting must allow trans identified males to compete in the women's division under the Minnesota Human Rights Act, which bars gender identity discrimination. One of these powerlifting uh, women suggested that this is essentially the end of women and powerlifting, given the significant physical advantage these males will have. Well, in its transgender participation policy, USA Powerlifting contends that males on average have increased body and muscle mass, bone density, bone structure, and connective tissue, thus creating a disadvantage for biological females is pure strength um, in pure strength sports. So this battle will continue, and it seems clear that ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court will have to decide uh, whether or not feminism is dead and women's sports is essentially uh, dead when they are required to compete against physically superior males on the uh, on the field, in the pool, and in this case in powerlifting. But again, this um, high school, this Christian high school in Vermont, is now barred from competing in any future uh, sports. And this is with regard to their uh, girls team, uh, because they have declined to compete against males who identify as females, but maintain the uh, Y chromosome and the strength accompanying that chromosome in competition with girls. We're going to continue to follow this story. And as I mentioned, I believe ultimately it will be resolved or at least addressed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Oftentimes they have um, an opportunity to address an issue, but only rule in a very narrow way that doesn't apply broadly. So there's that possibility as well. Well, we are out of time. I do want to let you know tomorrow we'll be featuring the International Christian Response in our Radiothon, giving you an opportunity to become better acquainted with the struggles of the persecuted church and an opportunity to come alongside and support them in their efforts to remain faithful, obedient servants of Christ. That's coming up tomorrow right here on the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.